This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation. She will be back on Tuesday. There is a lot of news around Ontario's long-term care homes related to the pandemic. Today, new visitor restrictions went into effect, and we've just learned that an announcement will be made today, likely by Chief Medical Officer Dr. Kieran Moore, that a rollout of fourth COVID vaccine doses is getting underway. The news of fourth doses was actually broken here on Fight Back on December 14th by Lisa Levin of Advantage, Ontario, who told Libby that nursing home residents would soon be getting fourth shots. We have some more details now, including that residents will be eligible for a fourth dose 84 days after their third. Let's get some reaction now. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. Dr. Vivian, happy holidays. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays. So what is your reaction to the fourth (sighs) shot rollout? You must have known this was coming. Well, I knew they were doing this in other countries. I know Israel has been leading the the charge in serial dosing, and that's going to come to all of us at some point. But obviously, it tends to roll out in, in, in our most vulnerable populations first. But my main question is, well, hold on. Why are we talking about this when we still haven't even provided boosters, the third doses, to, you know, the majority of staff and still, you know, just under 20% of our residents don't even have the booster. So can we just deal with focusing on actually rolling out the third doses properly now before we start, you know, trying to distract with talk of fourth doses? I just think, you know, it's another way to make it look like they're doing more when really there are so many other things they should be doing right now and they should have been doing to safeguard this sector ahead of what we're seeing right now. So residents of long-term care became eligible for a third dose as boosters back in August, but you're saying one in five nursing home residents in the province still have to get their third shot? Yeah, only 84% of residents have the booster, which is ridiculous to me. And frankly, it's ridiculous that not only that, but only 43% of staff have the boosters when I have been warning for weeks now, weeks that they needed to immediately get boosters to top up this, this specific sector, which was again left behind. They knew this was coming. They sat on their hands. And as usual, we are in this process of reacting to the, you know, <laughs> the wave of Omicron that is about to hit us because we're very concerned that when mass staffing shortages occur, which they're going to, and they're already starting, we're already hearing from homes that are reaching out to family members, asking them to volunteer the essential caregivers. And instead, uh, you know, of actually addressing the fact like not having daily rapid testing, not providing N95s to all workers and visitors, not dealing with air quality and HEPA filters, and actually, oh, I don't know, dealing with, you know, air filtration in these facilities, not having, you know, a surge staffing plan, these things which are so vital. And, and instead we're hearing about, you know, fourth, fourth shots when, when they can't even get third shots down properly. Uh, Come on. Yeah, right. It leaves you shaking your head. Um, now, in terms of the staff, it wasn't that long ago that the the deadline came and went for staff to be double vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, so how realistic is it uh, for those who are waiting until the, the last minute to get their second shot uh, for the third shots to take effect in terms of a mandate yeah, for staff? It's, it's a problem. I mean, you know, and the sad part is if they had just listened three weeks ago when I started raising the, the alarm bells on this, they could have already provided boosters to every single worker and resident. And we could we wouldn't be talking about this. It could have been dealt with before it really hit because we all saw this coming. And again, 
this government waits until literally the house is on fire before they send in any some sort of supports. And really, we're not even really seeing supports right now. All they're doing is effectively clamping down on visitors and reconfining these poor residents again at Christmas time. Because keep in mind, this happened last Christmas, too, where they were confined in the height of the second wave where we were losing seniors by the hour. And now they are being re-traumatized again because this government is failing consistently to enact the proper safeguards they need to, not only now, last month, two months ago. Dr. Vivian, just looking at uh, the government's own data on long-term care facilities, uh, it was just updated at 10.30 this morning. So there are 58 long-term care homes in the province in an outbreak, and an outbreak could mean as little as one case. The previous day was 47. Of those 58 homes in outbreak, 20 have no resident cases. Would this stand to reason that that the boosters, at least so far, are protecting the residents because 100%. we're not we're not we're not seeing the spread yeah. like we are in the community? One hundred percent. And this is why I'm also, frankly, just irritated with our minister right now. When we have family members who are triple vaccinated, and we know the booster provides a very good protection, and we see it happening, we see it right unfolding as you just pointed out with our our residents. So why are we locking out family members who are triple vaccinated and want to assist and help when we know we're losing staff because many of them, the majority, are only double vaccinated? It doesn't make sense. There is no clear, cohesive, cogent process at at play. It feels like they're grasping at straws for what to do right now in long-term care. And these families, you know, because I want to shout out to Kelly right now. Kelly, who's listening with her mom right now in a long-term care home, who are just terrified and frustrated and so fed up with with what is happening because this didn't have to go down this way. And furthermore, the numbers that you just stated, we're hearing different numbers from different outlets. So the Ontario Healthcare Coalition just posted this 92 outbreaks yesterday on their data set. Uh-huh. So where, what is the actual number? I don't even think the ministry has a handle on how many homes are in outbreak right now. And that's, that's pretty troublesome. And I'm hearing from families who are telling me the outbreaks at their homes that we're talking dozens of cases. And unfortunately, again, they tend to be staff-driven. And because we did not send mobile clinics out to make it easy for these staff who are already burnt out and working round the clock to assist and have been for two years now. I can't even imagine how terribly tired these poor workers are. And we knew that in the the first rollout of vaccines, sending mobile clinics was the effective way to increase uptake, yet they didn't do it this time around. Doctor, Uh, I know our time is limited with you. Uh, In terms of these new visitor restrictions, designated caregivers may still go into long-term care homes. How many designated caregivers are allowed per resident? How does that work? It's two. Uh, the minister said that himself on Tuesday, although conveniently it's not listed in their, um, you know, ministry document, which I don't understand why, but he said himself too, which, which would mean they're retaining the same policy that was rolled out in September. And this is the same policy that was rolled out last, uh, holiday season too. It went down to two essential caregivers, but at the same time, we're hearing that some homes are continually being bad actors and finding reasons to even lock these two out or going down to one. And, and there seems to be no oversight by, you know, the ministry and our minister to actually step in and say, well, hold on. No, that's not right. They have rights. We fought for these essential caregivers to be in these homes and assist because they provide crucial support and, and frankly, unpaid care. Um, and yet there are still bad actors who are unilaterally breaking the rules with zero repercussions. What needs to happen as of today? There's no going back. So what, yeah. what would you implement province-wide yeah. today? Uh, immediately uh, daily testing for all staff. Um, we already daily test essential caregivers. We have to do daily testing of the staff. We have to provide N95 for all staff and visitors at all times. Right now, it's only used when they're dealing with a suspect or confirmed COVID case, resident case. That's just not acceptable, especially when we have, you know, Public Health Ontario saying everyone should be using N95, even if they're not fit tested right now because of how contagious Omicron is. So, 
And, and then really dealing with the surge staffing plan, what's going to happen when these workers are starting to have to isolate en masse because their two doses are not effective against Omicron. They're effective against, you know, hospitalization, thank right. God, and, and you know, less severe cases, but they will still have to isolate when they get this. And we're seeing you know, the majority of cases right now are indeed among staff. So who's going to step in and care for these workers? There is no plan right now. Central caregivers are being asked to volunteer and yet they're limiting it down to two. Why? When we have people who are triple vaccinated, you need to fix that and let them in. Obviously, they'll use PPE. They will do whatever you ask them to do, but they are here and want to help. Why are you not letting them in? Dr. Vivian, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Stay safe. You too. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving. She's an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. You've heard her many times here on Fight Back. You've seen her on TV. A passionate advocate, to be sure. Your phone calls are also welcome if you have a loved one in long-term care. If you'd like to share your feelings about this fourth shot rollout, about the new visitor restrictions, numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Kelly in Toronto, are you the Kelly Dr. Vivian was just referencing? Hi, yes, that's me. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. What would you like to add from your perspective? Well, my main focus concern, Vivian covered so much, uh, the daily testing is imperative. Kudos to uh, my and I'd like to think what would happen if Okay, um, Kelly, your line is, I don't know if it's, if you hold your receiver just a little bit out from... Can you hear me now? You're, you're breaking up. Are you on a mobile? Yes, I am. I'm in my mother's room, actually. Okay. Can you hear me now? It's not that good. Try again. If not, maybe we can get you on a different line. Okay, dear. I'll try to help it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, we'll get you to call back if you don't mind, because we do want to hear your story. Okay. Let's go to Rob in Toronto. Rob, hi. Go hi. ahead. Uh, yeah, I have my mom. She's in there in a nursing home for 16 years, and right now uh, I'm going through exactly what Vivian says. They're they gave us the first and second shot at the nursing home, everybody, staff, uh, residents, and visitors and all that. And the third one, now we have to go out and get our own. I got mine. My mother has it. But uh, I know staff, PSWs, and cleaning people that haven't got it. And now they've been, um, uh, they've got the COVID, and now they're at home, and they're short staff. It's crazy. It's, it's, and this is a city-run uh, nursing home. And Rob, not every resident has a designated caregiver, right? No, no, exactly. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm there for my mother, but I see a lot of residents that don't have anybody, and they're short staff. I'm telling you, lunch is supposed to be at 12. It's coming at 1 o'clock. These people are waiting to get fed. It's crazy. And the way the government's done it is completely wrong. So, I mean, we get tested before we go in, yes, but they're so short staffed. And unless you have somebody in a nursing home, you don't understand what's going on. Rob, give us a picture of what how many staff would be there normally and how many staff are there are there now because of people isolating. Well, what I see, I was there yesterday and uh usually uh they uh one PSW has uh, about 8 residents. I think one PSW had about uh, 16 residents yesterday. There were so I seen half the staff there cleaning people. They're all off because they've been tested and they've been uh, positive, and uh, it's a joke. It really is. It's sad. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm I have a brother that is there today, but I'm usually going every day. And uh, it what you see, it would blow your mind. It would really blow your mind how how things are run. It's crazy. Rob, I thank you for calling in and bringing it to our attention. Thank you. Uh, we'll go back to Kelly and then Dr. Samir Sinha is joining us. He is a leading geriatrician here in Toronto, and uh, we'll get to his comments. But Kelly, I want to pick up from where we left off. How's your phone line now? Uh, mine's good. How's it? How do you I sound? I think that's a little better. Yeah, I turned the Wi-Fi off, so hopefully that helps. I'm currently feeding my mom lunch right now as we speak. Um, my point was daily testing is so imperative because Fortunately, they do that here at my mom's long-term care, thank goodness. Um, I can't imagine what would have happened had they not. Um, and she's, she's the staff member that would have been around here tested positive Saturday, so she's been in her room since then. And my concern, uh, Vivian covered so much, 
but I'm dreading, we went through this last year, and my concern is how long are we going to keep them confined to the room even though they're testing negative? Because the, just to keep her, you know, mentally active, I'm here from morning so she goes to bed, and it's, it's a tough, it's a tough go, especially somebody with dementia. Yes. Yeah. So um, that they won't do anything unless the ministry says. So they're going to keep them locked in the room until the ministry says if they're negative, they can at least go out to the TV room, or because they're really not a danger to each other if they're all negative, and if, right. if all staff and uh, caregivers are wearing proper PPE. So you and say that's what we're doing. you say some residents are confined to the room. No, residents all. All, but oh. but they're not tested positive. Correct. Wow. Now, I currently, we were tested yesterday because it was three days since the staff. Um, other floors were positive prior, but they've been tested, and they're, all the residents are negative, thank goodness. Um, so that's my point is, are right. we going to keep... Is, this is reminiscent of uh, the first and second waves. Oh, Lord, yes. And I, I, I call my mom a survivor because she got through that. And so did I. And here we and go again. Yeah. Yeah. Groundhog Day all over again, but more detrimental than just, you know, that. So, yeah, yeah I appreciate Vivian. Thank you so much for speaking for us because we're just exhausted. Kelly, thank you for calling. Thank you. Best to all. Bye. Let's go to Dr. Samir Sinha now. He is the director of geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. Sinha, what do you make of uh, some of these phone calls we're getting? And the lines are jammed with people who have loved ones in long-term care. Yeah, no, it's it's sad because, again, we've known that these are the most vulnerable settings in Ontario. Uh, we know that seniors just in general are, are, are people at greatest risk. Uh, people forget that every day we hear about a few deaths here and there. But we've had over 30,000 Canadians die now, and 93% of them have been older people. The majority of them actually in community sweatings. But we know that some of the greatest um, challenges we've had are really caring for people in our long-term care settings. And right now, it's not necessarily the risk of getting COVID in these settings. It's more the bigger issue we have is that with COVID being out there and uh, and spreading so quickly, whenever a staff member gets sick or ill, uh, they'll have to isolate. And when we already have precariously staffed homes, we just heard it. You know, there's just not enough staff around to provide basic care needs. And sadly, we think that a number of the deaths that have happened in our care homes were just from residents not even getting their basic care needs met. So that's going to be a bigger issue right now in terms of how we continue to deliver good, high-quality care in long-term care homes, but also in our hospitals. So these are issues that we knew would become problems, uh, that we've had months to kind of better prepare for what we could do. And now, as usual, we're playing a game of catch-up and, mm. and scramble, sadly. Um, and this is affecting people's lives um, everywhere. So it sounds good that the government is rolling out this fourth shot program, but the issue, as you point out, is not really at this moment around residents getting COVID. It's about them becoming neglected because the staff members don't have their boosters. Absolutely, Jane. It's it's just it's it's something that we've we've known, you know, at the start of the pandemic, how vulnerable these settings were. We we knew prior to the pandemic, 80% of our long-term care homes um, were having troubles recruiting and retaining staff. That didn't get any easier during, um, you know, during the pandemic and our subsequent waves. So we have homes that are having even more challenges recruiting and retaining staff. And so when you actually have people going sick, if a staff member go, gets sick, and we've had tens of thousands who've gotten sick uh, throughout this pandemic, and sadly, 32 people who died working in these settings over the last two years, you can imagine that whenever a staff member gets sick, they've got to be isolating for at least 10 days at the moment, and 10 days without a key staff person who sometimes is responsible for caring for up to 15 people at a time, that really means that unless we can find a replacement quickly at a moment's notice, um, that's a lot of people who just are not going to get the same level of care they were able to before. So these are these are situations that you know, we, we shouldn't be caught, you know, off guard so easily. We've had months to prepare for this. Um, and just like others have been talking about before me, um, this is a situation where, you know, we've we've known about, you know, getting our boosters out. We started getting our boosters out 
to older residents back in August. And 99% of our residents, 99% of our staff have gotten their first and second doses in these settings, for example. But when we were rolling out our booster campaign in August um, and started to do that, the focus was just about residents, not necessarily about staff, not about family caregivers. And so all of a sudden now we're scrambling saying, well, oh goodness, you know, we, we don't have our staff vaccinated um, or boosted to the level that we want. And especially family caregivers. Now if we're thinking about four shots, great. You know, let's start getting those out there, but let's get enough vaccines in so we can give residents their four shots or their third shots, frankly, if they haven't received those so far. Mm-hmm. But then make sure that we can allow our staff and family caregivers to get their shots as well, because these are if we if we don't get all of these individuals vaccinated to the level that they need to be, it puts everybody in that group at risk. So, in the interim, Doctor Sinha, do you think um, the the way they're approaching it in Quebec is going to be, have to be the way it goes? So, uh, the COVID positive but asymptomatic staff workers uh, may only have to isolate for seven days. That's now the the case in Quebec, rather than the. 10, will that make a difference? Well, I mean, it, it it might make a difference in terms of you getting people back on the floor, if you will, you know, sooner rather than later. The challenge right now is, is that, you know, in the U.S., they've dropped that number to five, for example. I think a lot of eyebrows were being raised at that point because we know that, you know, just a five-day isolation period may still result in some people still being infectious beyond that five-day period that could potentially infect more people, you know, within within the setting. That's why currently it stands at 10. The U.S., you know, is recommending that it drop to as low as five. I think Quebec, and, and frankly, they have a good public health infrastructure, I think, has kind of said, well, let's do seven. But, you know, my only concern is, is that we're doing this not because the science necessarily says this is exactly the right thing to do, but 10 days isn't necessary, seven days is actually correct. I think right now everybody's just scrambling to try and say, uh, you know, maybe you know it's a risk that some, that that this this policy itself shortening this 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 isolation period, you know, might still spread more COVID around. But it's it's the lesser of two evils if it means that some people are going to go without care. So it's just sad that two years in, you know, we're looking at you know compromises here, but. What disturbs me the most and so many others right now is that we've also made deliberate choices that are that are really negatively affecting some. We're locking out visitors uh, from care homes. We are allowing essential family caregivers to come in. But as you noted, not everybody has an essential family caregiver. Yet we still have 10,000 people to gather you know, for a Raptors game the other day when the NHL and others are saying, nope, we shouldn't be doing this at all. So we're deliberately making some choices that seem absolutely reckless and we're making other choices um, that, you know, I think the Romans used to call it bread and circuses. If you don't have enough bread to feed the population, throw a bunch of circuses and that way it'll keep people distracted um, when sadly people are going to die. So, I'm very conflicted by how our government is approaching this because it seems like it's playing a game of catch up um, and doing so that's actually affecting negatively affecting too many people's lives. Many inconsistencies. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Arlene in Lindsay, you're up next. What would you like to add? Hi. Um, how are you doing? Good? Yeah, doing great, actually. No complaints. Go ahead. That's the way. Anyways, I've had my third booster and now they're talking about a fourth booster and I'm thinking, when does this stop? The pump is full of this stuff, which is supposedly to protect us, which I thought, okay, I'm scot-free now. I've had my third booster, weighed the two weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're talking about a fourth, and I react to it. I feel lousy for two weeks after. My bones ache. uh, My heart's a bit flippier. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on every time I get injected. So when does this stop? That's my question. Dr. Sin, how, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, these residents, they have to have been 84 days out from their second, sh- uh, third shot to get their fourth shot. Uh, Arlene brings up a point, a good point. When, when will it end? No, it's, it, it's a great question. And I think, I think some of the challenges we had is that during the early vaccine rollout, there was a belief that, okay, one shot won't be sufficient. This is going to be a two shot series. Um, and that will constitute a person being fully vaccinated. 
I think the challenge we we have with that language by saying two shots equals fully vaccinated, if you will, is that we're realizing from the data, you know, that there is good evidence that a booster will actually be necessary. Um, the question is that there are some vaccinations that we're quite used to, um, you know, for example, the tetanus vaccination, um, where we recommend that people get boosted every 10 years. There are some vaccinations that just don't create long-lasting immunity. And, and the, the, the science around the fourth shot, for example, is not that everyone will need the fourth shot. Right now, the current thinking is that the vast majority of individuals, after they get that booster shot, should have the level of immunity that they will need. That's good. But we do know that in some highly immunocompromised populations, such as folks who've received you know, transplants and they're on anti-rejection medication, some individuals who are um, might have other medical conditions that make their immune systems much more highly compromised, that in certain studies that have come out in those populations, we are seeing waning immunity after a three-month period, hence this idea of a four-shot for selected mm-hmm. populations, including our long-term care population, because we believe they would actually benefit just given how high risk that population actually is. It's so really, it's too bad. recommend for everybody, yeah. but, but certainly for some populations. But it's frustrating because people say, you know, are we living with this? Is this something that I now have to do every three months? We don't know that. But right now we're saying for very, very select populations that are high risk, this is where we're considering a fourth dose. It's just too bad, as Dr. Vivian was saying, that the fourth doses for residents aren't being given alongside fourth doses for staff so that you'd have more protection at more long-term care homes. It's Dr. Samir Sinha. He's the Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network. Jane for Libby and your phone calls. I think we can get a couple more in here. 416-360-0740 or one 866 740 Rick in Guelph, go ahead. You're up next. Yes, Jane. Uh, I just wanted to say that the long-term care home that my wife was in, in Guelph here, must be the shining star because they uh, had uh, the patients and staff had their third shot at least three months ago. Oh, that's fantastic. And they do uh, rapid tests on everybody. Uh, every every two days, like forty eight hours. And, so and Rick, and <clears throat> so Rick, is this a nonprofit or or for profit home? Yes, yes, it's no, nonprofit. It's run by the city. Well, that is that sounds great, doesn't it, Doctor Sinhut? Sounds like that is an example of the way it should have been done. And, and you know, and I think thanks, Rick, for for calling in because I think this is a great example that. You know, while we're talking about a system with 626 homes and, and and over 700 retirement homes in Ontario, there are several that have actually stepped up and provided incredible leadership. Um, they've looked after their staff. They've looked after their residents. They've really included family caregivers and families. And we've really seen some homes that have not experienced a single outbreak. Um, they've gotten their boosters. They've really, they've really stepped up and they've done such an incredible job. And I think when we're hearing about, you know, the challenges that we're having in long-term care, it's a great opportunity to recognize that there have been yes. several homes that have really gone above and beyond. And, and, and so I thank Rick for actually calling, you know, his, his wife's home out. Um, because there have been several like that all across Ontario um, that have really done an excellent job. Yeah, a city-run long-term care home in Guelph. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for calling in. Let's go to Katrina in Etobicoke. Go ahead. Hi, Katrina. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. What would you like to add? Well, I'm kind of adding another perspective to the conversation of long-term care homes. Um, I'm currently here at home in Etobicoke, with my grandmother, who's 87 years old, at her home. I'm a single mother. I don't have any brothers or sisters. We're a small family unit. We're trying to make it on our own. She's recently come home from a hip surgery. So you can imagine all the care that's involved after that, trying to get her back on her feet. I'm listening to your callers and the conversation about the staffing shortages, the burnout, and all of that, it is no better 
for the PSWs and the home care workers, um, when they've tried their best to provide me with it at most two hours a day of help through the OHIP care, um, they, they are doing their best. And it's almost at a daily now. I'm getting a phone call every morning with a cancellation or a change or a move over. Uh-huh. And that's fine. I, I have sympathy. But at the end of the day, that weight is still left on my shoulders, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I, and my heart breaks for everybody who's, who's doing the home care situation. Because in Ontario, at the end of the day, this is unpaid, unrecognized work. Um, there's, there's no T4 to file for this. There's, there's no HR department. I don't get a break. Do you know what I mean? It, it, oh, yes. It's very no. much all on us. It's and important that you called. And we're going to get through it as much. And I know there are families that are dealing with it the same way we are. We're all going to get through this. But I'm asking Doug Ford and the Ontario government, at what point with this um, talk of the caregiver's benefit... At what point are we going to mandate the benefit? Because we're speaking of mandating and COVID vaccinations for the children, and that's fine. I agree with that, too. But there are some people that we're going on two years of, of hard work at home, and we haven't reached out our hand and asked for much help. But you are now. We don't speak up that we will be just constantly looked over. Okay, Katrina, thank you very much for calling in. I want to get Dr. Sinha's reaction because this is his area of specialty. And uh, you're right, there is long-term care, but there is also care at home. And uh, a lot of advocates, uh, Dr. Sinha, want to see more home care. But but, uh, when a person is working and a single mom, how do they properly care for an elderly person? Right. Yeah, no. And so I think, you know, several really important issues here. One is that, you know, we have way more people who are trying to get care in their own homes so that they don't have to end up in a long-term care home. And we've actually seen that this sector has been even more devastated staffing-wise because lots of people have left because they can go and work in a long-term care home or in a hospital or in a vaccination clinic and get paid far more. Our home care workers are our lowest paid public service employees in the healthcare system. So that's a challenge. And, and we've been advocating that we have to better improve pay and working conditions. Otherwise, we just don't have any care providers to provide the care. The other piece is we have to recognize, you know, that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, that are providing unpaid care. Um, And they're often invisible workers who, frankly, if a home care provider doesn't, you know, show up, um, who looks after them? So the one thing I want to you know, all listeners to know about is there's two things I'd love them to look up. There's one is something we fought for and we, we won in 2017 called the Canada Caregiver Credit. Any unpaid caregiver who's providing care to a loved one can apply for that um, and, it, and, and it can provide some financial relief. And also throughout COVID, we were advocating with the ministers of health and seniors, et cetera, to create a, um, a Canada recovery benefit um, that was specifically aligned for people who are taking time off uh, from work so they can provide care. So there are some resources there um, that could provide some financial relief, not at, not so where it needs to be. But I just want to make sure that if that could make a little bit of a difference and a way to acknowledge some of the incredible work that's happening, often unseen and unheard, um, that um, that those people do know about these opportunities um, to try and provide a bit of financial relief. Katrina, thank you so much for calling in so that Dr. Sinha could bring uh, that good news to our attention. All right. I have to uh, have to change gears uh, here. Dr. Sinha, any final thoughts uh, as we move forward to, uh, you know, what is apparently becoming an even greater surge of Omicron cases for long-term care? Um, what would you like to add? I just want to remember, remind people that, you know, 93% of the folks who died so far in this pandemic have been older people. Um, and it just reminds us that we have long neglected the care of older citizens and, and people. And this is not, and this is what the, the, the whole pandemic has really exposed. So I think it's a matter of, it's not just getting through this next wave, but it's also thinking about how within 10 years, one in four Canadians is going to be an older Canadian. 
we don't do well compared to international countries in terms of providing the right care in the right place in the right time by the right provider. And we need to really focus how we are going to truly look ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror and say, how are we going to truly respect and support our older people um, over over the coming decades? Because one day it will be us. It will well. be, yes. So let's think about that. Dr. Sinha, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Jane. Leading geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University of Health Network in Toronto. It's Jane for Libby, and coming up here in, well, less than the second half of Fight Back, we have about 23 minutes to go, New Year's resolutions. Do you make them? Do they work? Also, what are you doing for New Year's Eve? Let's have some fun here for the last 20 minutes. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back on Tuesday, and I hope you'll join me tomorrow for a special look back at the year that was with the best phone calls of 2021 to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back with Libby Snymer. It's the best of Free For All Friday 2021 tomorrow after the noon news. Well, despite all the doom and gloom of the latest COVID-19 variant sweeping the globe, there is still a new year ahead, two days from now, with the possibility of better days. I'd like to get your involvement in this segment. What are you looking forward to in 2022? Do you make New Year's resolutions? Do you keep them? And what are you planning for tomorrow night, New Year's Eve? Joining me to talk about resolutions and the positivity a new year brings, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Dobson. He's a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary. Doctor, thanks for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. How cold is it out there right now? Uh, it was minus 25 overnight. It's a balmy minus 20 right now. Wow. You're not used to that there. Oh, yes. Every year it gets about that cold. <laughs> okay. But this seems unusually cold. Um, anyway, great yeah. to have you along. Do you make resolutions? You. No, I don't, actually. I set goals for myself regularly throughout the year, but I don't actually make New Year's resolutions. Why do some people like to make them? What is the, what is the psychology around New Year's resolutions? Well, I, I think uh, you, you hinted at it a bit in the introduction, that it's a sign of hope, you know, that it's the start of a new year. People feel the, the desire to make changes, positive changes, and so some people use this as an opportunity. So I, I was looking at a survey in the United States last year. It said 27% of people that were surveyed actually make New Year's resolutions. So it's not the majority of people, but for some people it is important. So that means that one in three of you out there listening to Zoomer Radio today have made or are about to make a New Year's resolution, and we want to hear from you. Or maybe there's a New Year's resolution you made years ago, uh, like to stop smoking or to exercise more or to give up alcohol. And how did that go for you? 416-360-0740 or one 740 uh, and about that, doctor, how many people mm-hmm. are able, of those one in three who make resolutions, uh, for how long can they keep them? Or, you know, is I, I suspect the percentage is fairly small. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. The, uh, I can tell you first from that same survey that the most common uh, resolutions were to exercise more, to save money, to eat healthier, and to lose weight. So it's not surprising that at this time of year we see a lot of the exercise and weight loss programs advertising themselves. Uh, of those terms of success, though, about one week later, 75% were still working on it. One month later, about 64%, and six months later, 46%. So, so that's not bad. You know what I'm hearing from a lot of uh, friends is, is the idea of a dry January, giving up wine, giving up uh, any kind of alcohol for the month just to kind of get a clean start and, and dry out and not be so reliant on having that cocktail at the end of the day, which is, mm-hmm. uh, it's been easy to go there during the pandemic. 
It's not a bad thing to do, and uh, in fact, the data do suggest that rates of alcohol consumption have gone up during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, so in terms of uh, the exercise and the weight loss, uh, certainly it's a good kickstart, right? But um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to coincide with the beginning of the year. I know a lot of people think that yeah. September, you know, we were all trained to think about the new year, the new school year in September. That's also a time of renewal for a lot of people. Exactly right. Yeah. And for some people, it's their birthday or for other people, it's an anniversary of some event that they've had. So again, for different people, it's, it's different times. But yeah, the new year is a, a reasonable psychological point of time. So uh, for those of you who are out there listening, uh, really, you were so great yesterday with your calls to Dr. Uni. Uh, you were, the phones were ringing off the hook here when we were talking about long-term care. I just want to know how you're doing, uh, what you're thinking about for the new year, whether you're making a resolution, how you're feeling uh, in terms of your positivity level as we see this unbelievable surge in Omicron cases. Uh, t- today alone, doctor, I don't know if you heard, but here in Ontario, we're getting up close to 14,000 daily cases. Yeah, yeah I did hear that. Yeah, we're doing similarly poorly here in Alberta. Uh, proportionately, yes. Yes, um, that's so- right. yeah. You know, give me a call. I want to hear what you're doing tomorrow night, uh, how you're going to make an evening enjoyable, perhaps with a small gathering with your partner, close family members uh, who live with you, 416-360-0740 or toll-free. 1-866-740-4740. One eight six six seven forty four seven forty. You know, music is quite curative, Doctor. We've mm-hmm. got an amazing show lined up tomorrow night, New Year's Eve show here on Zoomer Radio. All of the on-air personalities taking part, playing our favorite music. Lots of upbeat music to make us feel better. Certainly, uh, that can do a lot to turn a Absolutely. sour mood positive. Yeah, in fact, one of the things I was hoping to talk about today was about the things that we know about the psychology of anxiety and stress and then how to turn that around and use those kinds of things to uh, perhaps make a better year coming forward. So so there actually are, are three main psychological characteristics associated with anxiety. One is predictability. So if you can't predict what's coming down the line, we tend to be more anxious, not surprisingly. Uh, one is controllability. So even if we know what's coming down the line and it's making us worried, if we can control it, we can feel better. And then the last is the meaning or the way that we think about uh, the event and how important it is to us. And certainly in terms of Omicron or you know the, the ongoing pandemic, we can't uh, predict it very well, it seems. Uh, what we can do individually, though, is do some control. And so things like listening to music, uh, reading a book, uh, reaching out, being with friends and families, you know, these are all things that we can control and are the kinds of things that I would definitely encourage people to think about. In terms of those people who are struggling, particularly at this point in the year, uh, during the holidays, it's for some people it is a time of isolation, and those people who are by themselves and are feeling isolated are reminded that many others have loved ones, even if it's been in small gatherings. Um, in terms of... Uh, Staying, you know, not going to a place that's too dark in terms of keeping our mental health intact. What kind of guidance or advice would you offer? Yeah, our, our advice is actually not that different than it would have been before the pandemic. So the things that we would encourage people to do is first to check their mental health, you know, to stop and pay attention to how they're feeling and thinking and whether or not there is a change going on. Um, so that's important. Um, we know that maintaining social contact is a critical aspect of mental health. And so for people that are feeling isolated, if you can find any way to reach out to others, uh, you know, and maybe people you haven't spoken to for a time, um, you know, do that. One of the things I've done personally, for example, is I have a, a large list of people I send a New Year's message to. And so I've just recently done that. And some people I hear back from, some I don't. But, you know, it's, it's more important for me to, to send out the message. Uh, so being contacted, keeping physically active, we know it's actually something that does help people's mental health. Uh, and again, for different people, that means different things. But uh, generally, the recommendation is about three times a week, minimum of about 30 minutes. So some kind of aerobic exercise, something that gets your heart rate up and gets the breathing a bit heavier. Uh, watching your thoughts. Again, we know that many times when people start to feel more anxious or depressed, their thoughts turn to the negative. 
So if you find that, then you can stop and uh, pay attention to those thoughts and perhaps challenge them. Um, so, so here are a few ideas. Um, yes. But uh, in, in terms of going back to resolutions, maybe, maybe can I do that, Jen? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, and we do have some callers that want to get in on the okay. conversation here as well. Okay. But well, yes. Well, well, why don't we go to a caller for a minute? I mean, I do have some ideas, again, about okay. how to set a resolution and increase your chances of being successful. So okay. Maybe I could do that later. Oh, that's excellent. Let's go to Andrea in Aurora. Hi, Andrea. Go ahead. Oh, Hi. Okay, um, I just uh, wanted to tell you that um, I, I gave up making resolutions a few years ago because I found that the uh, letdown when you don't succeed is, is um, you know, it just is disappointing for you and it's, it becomes not a positive experience. Doctor, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what I decided to do instead was to um, focus on something, just, just call it a focus, not a resolution, so that... I'm, uh, you know, I'll focus on health. I'll focus on uh, mental health if I need to, particularly at this time. And this year, my particular focus is going to be on kindness. Nice. And so, uh, so that's, uh, and I've, I've already hauled out my journal, so I can journal my my progress with that. I, I was just going to ask. So, when you when you pick a theme, I think that's important. How do you know you're actually fulfilling that theme? Like, you must have yeah. some markers or something that you uh, yeah, that. exactly so so one week i might i might just sort of track it did it did uh, this week did i actually do anything that made me kinder to other people or or uh, or that increased my mental health and sometimes it's a project thing like one time i was moving a house so i knew i or moving house and i knew i had certain things that i had to achieve and and i would track that and that was easy to track but things that are less concrete, like, uh, like kindness. I like your perspective, Andrea. Thank you for calling in. Uh, yeah. Doctor, did you want it? You wanted to add uh, those points yeah. about no, how I, to I keep a resolution I, and be successful at it. Yeah, well, in fact, I think Andrea's called for just a couple of them. So first, I think, is, you know, if you can have uh, goals or, or resolutions that are consistent with your values, that's a critical thing to do. And again, ideally, you set goals or resolutions that are not for other people. So not because you want to please somebody else, but because it's something that something that is intrinsically of value to you. So I think that's important. I think a second thing is you have to think about how you're going to enact these kinds of values or these ideas. And Andrea can give a good example here of having sort of what we would call smart goal setting. So thinking about what is it specifically you're going to do, keeping track of it. So it sounds like she has a journal that she keeps track of it. Sounds like they're relatively modest, so they're achievable. Uh, they're important to her, and, you know, she each week checks in. So, again, she's doing something in a time-limited way. So that, that's what we would call smart goal setting. And then the third suggestion I would make is uh, making it public if you can. If you can share your goal with somebody else or share your resolution with somebody else, uh, let them know that this is a commitment you've made to yourself. I think that will also go some distance to helping you increase the likelihood you're going to keep successful. Great advice. Uh, Doctor, we need to take a quick break, uh, and mm-hmm. I promise I will get back to the callers who are waiting here. Uh, numbers to call about New Year's resolutions, how you're feeling at this time of the year, what you're planning to do for New Year's Eve. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. I'm joined by Dr. Keith Dobson, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary. We're talking about New Year's resolutions. Do you make them? Do you keep them? How are you feeling at this time of year and uh, your plans for New Year's Eve? Doctor, let's go to Melanie in Toronto. Hi, Mm -hmm. Melanie. How are you? Fine. A blessed New Year to you all. And to you. For me, I like to read the Serenity Prayer, even though I never had, (laughs) I'm not an alcohol consumer, but I like that because especially the part where it says, help me God to change the things I can and the things that I can't. I've come to my senior years realizing I cannot control the universe. 
I can only do certain things, and if they don't turn out, fine. I move on. I don't let it upset me. It may hurt, but I've stopped trying to change other people, trying to help them and get frustrated. No, I will do the best that I can and leave the rest up to God and to the person that needs to change. So for me, my faith has been powerful, even though at one time I believe I was an atheist, but I found that reading the Bible, reading the problems of 5,000 years of the, the Hebrew history of their suffering and the suffering of people around the world has made, like in Humphrey Bogart's movie, Casablanca, amount to a, a what is it, a hill of beans? Yes. And so, you know, if we just give up control, I think the problem with humanity is we want to control. If you can give up control and say, God, I put this in your hands, what can I do about it today? And wake up every morning saying, who can I be nice to? And that's the first person, your husband, your family. Sometimes it won't work. Sometimes it will. But after a while, it becomes like riding a bicycle. It becomes the norm. So all I want to wish your listeners and the seniors especially, you're never alone. You always have God with you. And always you have good people, good research scientists. You have, I, I love to also listen to a gentleman called um, Francis, uh, who's a, the you probably will know this doctor, who's the Genome Project. He's now head of the NIS, uh, the National Institute okay, of Health. Okay, M- Melanie, I really appreciate your message. I'm going to let you go so the doctor can give us his his final words. But that, she brings up an excellent point mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. you know, you cannot control other people's behavior. You can only control how you are and how you act. Absolutely. I think that's a critical distinction. And that's what I was trying to talk about earlier, about how you should try to set goals or resolutions that are consistent with your values and and don't do them for other people because again you're much more likely to do the things that you can do and you can't control other people the, the other the other point that she made too which I'll just touch on and she she puts it in the context of religion but just in general I think looking at this balance between what you can change what you can control versus what you can't and learning to accept and to you know live with you know the things that you can't control is absolutely a critical life lesson any final comments, uh, good advice, guidance going into the year 2022? I mean, we were in a pandemic in 2020, all this year, 2021, uh, thoughts moving forward, and we may or may not be in it this time next year. Yeah, I certainly hope not. But yeah, I hope yeah, not, too. It, it, it's possible. Um, I think I guess one thing I would leave is that, you know, recognizing that behavior change is hard. You know, it takes persistence. It takes a dedication. It takes a, a direction, you know, sort of a sense of where you're going. So if you want to make a resolution, do it. Do it purposefully. Do it with your values and make it public if you can so that you can share it with other people. And I just wanted to, just ever so quickly, uh, you mentioned about sending out your New Year's message. So in a nutshell, what did you put in that message to, to people um, that you know? It's a, it's a bit of a sort of what's happened this year and my hopes for the coming year. So, you know, wishing that, you know, their lives will be healthy and happy and, you know, that, that this is the direction I'm trying to take my life as well. Nice idea. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. I've, en- I've enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Keith Dobson, Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Calgary. Jane for Libby, and tomorrow we're not going to ask you to call in for Free For All Friday. I'll be hosting a special Free For All Friday, Best of Free For All Friday 2021, the best calls of the year uh, that came in to fight back with Libby's Nimer. Perhaps yours will be one of them. So I hope you will join us for that. In the meantime, Bob Comsick is here with the news on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.